Welcome back to another episode of Cyberstar Talks podcast. I am Iona. As always, I am so thrilled you're spending your precious time with me and my honored guest. Today's guest is Deidre Diamond. Deidre is the founder and the CEO of CyberSN, the largest cybersecurity talent acquisition technology and services firm in the United States, transforming job searching and hiring for the cybersecurity industry. Standardizing all cybersecurity job functions into a common taxonomy of 45 roles, the CyberSand platform allows professionals to make anonymous public profiles that match with employer-posted job descriptions using the same taxonomy. This innovation is disruptive and solves a serious national security issue. Dangerous leadership style combines 25 years of experience working in technology and staffing, her love of the cybersecurity community, and a genuine enthusiasm for people. She has led a large-scale sales and operations and built high-performance teams at Rapid7 and Motion Recruitment prior to founding her own organizations. She believes the company culture established on anything-is-possible attitudes and open communication frameworks, along with positive energy, career advancement, and kindness, enables her teams to have fun at work and reach beyond peak performance. She also encourages the use of EQ, emotional intelligence skills, such as self-awareness, self-regulation, motivation, social skills, and empathy. Deidre has also founded Secure Diversity, which is a nonprofit organization working to raise awareness for and increase the hiring of women and underrepresented humans in the cybersecurity workforce. She has also spoken at some of the biggest tech summits, conferences, and podcasts in the world, including ISC Square Congress, RSA, ISSA International, and Hacker Halted. Deidre, I'm immensely honored to have you as a guest in my podcast. It's so great to be with you. Thanks for sharing all of that. I do believe our audience is eager to hear your thoughts and perspectives on the topic we're going to talk today. So let's get started. Ready. As usual, I love to ask my guests first how they landed in cybersecurity. What was the starting point of your journey in cybersecurity and how did you first discover and become interested in the field? Yeah, it's a great question. Shares my age a little bit, which I'm not afraid to do. Uh, in 1993, I was in a bar with a gentleman and that I worked for and other people that worked for him. And um, he was talking about cybersecurity company, a software company that he had and looking for a head of sales. And I said, I want that job. And I didn't even know what cybersecurity was. Um, and that was Rapid7, and I became the first VP of sales there uh, in January of 2007. And uh, I love it. I love, love, love the community. I'm a sociology criminal justice major, and um, I find this community to be super endearing social servants, and uh, I love helping in careers. It's no secret that companies are facing a huge cybersecurity talent shortage, the World Economic Forum recently reported a shortage of 3 million cybersecurity professionals around the globe. What is the root cause of this issue in your view? And how are companies considering um, leveraging alternative pipelines? Yeah, 
this was, you know, I'm almost 10 years now and uh, in business. And one of the first things I noticed was how nobody spoke the same language as it pertains to jobs in cybersecurity. Right. And so when I decided to found my own firm, that was my biggest problem. Like a security engineer meant so many different things, depending on what company we were talking to, and even more so the hiring manager and their experience. And so uh, very, very quickly from founding CyberSN, I knew that I needed a jobs taxonomy like I had in the 90s, and I, but it was on paper. <laughs> I needed a digital version of that, uh, you know, and to do what we did with IT back then. And so, uh, you know, we published a career center uh, quite a few years ago. It's definitely a top resource utilized in the community to say that there are 10 job categories and there are uh, 45 functional roles today. Now, again, when we started this, it was in the 20s. So 45 functional roles across 10 categories. And the 10 categories today are compliance, defense, develop, educate, manage, offense, plan, research, response, and sales. So, you know, I think the number one problem we have is that the population, the general population doesn't understand all the types of jobs that we have. Most people think of cybersecurity as a keyboard and a hoodie in a dark room. Attacking, Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, attacking or defending, which those people exist. And there's plenty of people that attack and defend that don't sit in dark, dark rooms. And then there's plenty of people that do things outside of attacking and defending. And maybe and wearing high heels. Right, <laughs> Yeah, there's so many different personas. Certainly now today, you know, the truth is the original persona is quite true. It's kind of like the original tech person that was back in the late 80s, you know, was sort of one person that everybody deemed didn't need communication skills. <laughs> yeah. Now they're they're the billionaires of the future. <laughs> Absolutely true. Knowledge is power, right? And we're 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 not we don't have the knowledge out in the community, whether it's with the US or the world. Uh this is a new industry. It's uh taken time and it's continued to understand and to turn it into jobs that are you know, uh, containable and in concept, as well as it's growing at the same time. Uh, do you think do you think that companies are now considering addressing this shortage by tapping into the women talent pool, which so far has been underutilized? Yes, I mean, you know, you you you'd have to be absolutely, you know, not not interested in security <laughs> to not take half the population as uh, as needed to defend because at the end of the day even outside of these jobs it really comes down to all of us as individuals and how we're going to interact in the digital era to 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 create security and so, yes, we're, we're, we started to see it about, mm, I don't know, out here in the U.S., I guess when I founded Secure Diversity, it was about six years ago. And myself and the others, we all founded within the same year each, uh, of each other here, WESIS, Women in Cybersecurity, uh, Cyber Jitsu, Women uh, in, in Cybersecurity Tech. You know, there's many of us. That it's It hasn't been too long. Yeah. yeah. And, and part of that movement started with women in the field wanting more respect. 
you know, like absolutely, it wasn't just or, or the focus on bringing women into security that certainly came with it because we be, had got our voice and, you know, joined forces, so to speak. But uh, there's there's certainly many organizations that have adopted a strategy of uh, focusing on women. And then, of course, there's still many organizations that don't have a strategy. More don't than do. It's sort of more leveling the playing field. Yeah, meaning um, what I hear you say is, uh, you know, women have to want the opportunity and want to stay, <laughs> you know. So what's the what's the path and what's the training and what's the development and, right. you know. Sort what's of the promise? Have, yeah. yeah, what's the promise? What's the plan? It's complicated right. from that perspective because there's such turnover in companies here in the U.S. I don't know what it's like for you, but in the U.S., on average, a chief information security officer stays at their employment 18 months. And oh. that's a short period of time. So yeah. you can't really invest in people in such a short period of time, especially if you add the context that if if a chief information security officer is leaving their job, they probably were looking for a year while they were working. Why do is you that, think this is happening? Is that they, they find better opportunities or? I think it's a, it's a combination of sort of the perfect storm. So the, as we talked about, people don't really understand cybersecurity. Well, that goes all the way up the chain. So the C-suite of organizations, it's seen as a cost center. It's, it's, you know, mo it's compliance driven budgets versus security driven budgets. And because of that, there's a lot of conflict of what should or shouldn't get done. And, and security leaders, you know, don't feel supported or they're the first to kind of feel like you're just here for compliance, even though we told you we care about security. And so they're, they're constantly looking for that, you know, place, you know, is caring about security. So it's, it's, it's that, um, but really, uh, it, it, you know, the number one thing is we're still a compliance driven security culture in the U S without a doubt, without a doubt. I see it every day, like the budgets that security leaders are given, it are not, not conducive to hiring what they need to hire and they don't even get the support they need in human resources you know right even even here in europe most of the companies become aware of cybersecurity only when an incident happens which shouldn't be the case yeah yeah it's it's it it, it really is too bad because it's causing a lot of stress you know to move jobs like that is stressful it's you know the broken job searching system like out here you know a year at for a chief information security officer to find something else and then only to find that it's the same thing you know that mm -hmm. they too truly aren't committed to security it's just compliance it's I think it's, it's impacts the, the social, you know, psyche, if you will. Uh, since you're leading a cybersecurity recruitment agency, can you share some insights on what companies can do to improve staff retention rates within their cybersecurity teams? Oh, I love that question. Yeah. In fact, this question matters to me so much that I recently personally created a service called 
retention as a service because I'm just so sick of watching it. Like I don't need all of this movement to have a healthy business. You know, I prefer to have our protectors mentally healthy than have all these jobs constantly moving. And so, you know, the num the, there's sort of a formula that goes with why people aren't retained and, the formula is a combination of role, you know, job roles and responsibilities in the department of security, as well as, you know, compliance, you know, jobs just aren't clearly defined. And because they're not clearly defined, there isn't a clear career path that's that the organization is holding uh, with the professional on a regular basis. And so, what ends up happening is, you know, they, there's lots of recruiters that want to, you know, place people. And if you're, you know, working with my agency, my recruiters aren't going to talk to anybody until they have a story about career development to sell. And if an employer doesn't have one, we're creating it with them to begin with before we start working the job, if you will. And so, you know, the career conversation is the number one thing that gets somebody to leave their organization is to go into an organization that has a clear plan and is willing to invest training dollars and has that, you know, planned out too. Uh, so, you know, if we want to retain people, we just look at the number one reason why they're leaving and do something. Yeah. you know, about that first. So I was like, oh my God, all my friends, they don't have the time. And quite frankly, they don't have the expertise. I mean, there's tons of different types of security people reporting to these security leaders they don't have the expertise to know the career mapping for every one of these functional roles. Uh, so I thought, well, then we have to offer it. And of course, you know, having the career center really helps, but what's needed is to keep in touch with uh, the individual's job and keep making sure that it's documented as things move and change, but more importantly, design their career path and support the, it, you know, the training and development that's needed. So that's number one. I think number two, in terms of retaining talent is this emotional intelligence, you know, conversation, meaning we have lots of managers that became managers because they're great individual contributors. Doesn't mean that they're great managers and, Managers need to have a skill that comes with a lot of emotional intelligence, and we just do not have that here um, much. And so offer that training. I've been teaching that those types of skills for a very long time. But, you know, the idea is that if you look at why people leave, which number one is career, number two is culture, which really means, you know, people leaving people you know, and money is, is not really on the list. It's so rare that somebody starts a search because of money. It's never the case, but when somebody, you know, I shouldn't say never, but it's very rare. But when, once somebody does have a reason to start talking to other employers and they do start talking to employers and then they actually get to the stage of offers, well, of course they're going to demand more money to leave yeah, and obvious. take Absolutely. a risk. Yeah. But that's not what started it. But when they go to give notice, of course, that's what they're talking about. <laughs> Because it's easier to leave that way, you know, yeah. like 
it's just easier to do that. And if you're not in the career conversation with somebody, then you're probably not in the money conversation. So, you know, those, those, those things are what people have to pay attention to if they want to keep people. And, you know, I always tell people, if you're in those conversations and you really don't know what the future has, it's okay. As long as you're in those conversations on a regular basis, looking at what the future could have, you know, and, and being honest and supporting people and making good decisions for them and for the company instead of waiting until yeah, somebody fair gets enough. Uh, yeah. Just a couple of days ago, actually, I read the news that Amazon posted nearly 25,000 job openings last year, where only 7,800 had been approved. Why is this happening? Isn't it something that could negatively impact the whole job hunting system? Oh, you're dead on. I commented on that online. Somebody <laughs> said, well, somebody said, well, it's just been the way that it's done. I'm like, oh my gosh. So we should just keep right. doing <laughs> it completely doesn't work. It's terrible. It's the whole r reason why things are the way they are. You're dead on. I mean, that means that 17,800 jobs were posted just by Amazon that weren't real jobs exactly they weren't even budgeted right that is so common so i gave a talk last week at secure world and i saw that article and then i have a bunch of data from our platform you know we have right now 190,000 or so jobs on our website and they're real time and every time a job goes on the market in the united states it's in our uh it's on our website and we keep it for 45 days but two things uh, we noticed right away. One is uh, people put their job up and they take it down every 30 days. Now, our assumption is that they're putting it back up because the algorithms say if your job's newly posted, it ranks higher. So there's one problem of how dumb this all is. And then number two is uh, how many positions are posted that aren't, yeah, budgeted or approved. And um, and that's the Amazon example. And then another thing is that public companies in the U.S. have to post their jobs externally before they can hire internally. So you got that going on. Right. <laughs> Meanwhile, they already know who they want to hire. And um, and then beyond that, the job descriptions don't even make sense. So we have too many job descriptions. We've got poor content in them. And, uh, you know, professionals are supposed to somehow maneuver that to find the right fit while they're working. It's, or, you know, I mean, most people are working when they're searching in this field. Uh, it's just ridiculous. It sounds very challenging. Well, it's why we built our job matching platform where there's no resumes and there's no job descriptions that don't use the taxonomy. And it's the reason why we can service companies so quickly. It was an internal application for five years before I ever made it a, uh, an application for the world. It is international and I'm looking forward to more countries using it. It is English speaking today, but at the end of the day, until we stop matching garbage content with garbage content, we're not going to mm -hmm. make anything different right. so that's what we've we've been over here doing so you hit the nail on the head big waste <laughs> post jobs that don't aren't open i mean how silly um given your vast experience in the cybersecurity industry uh, what are the most prominent skills that candidates needs to demonstrate to be ready for let's say an entry-level position in, in cybersecurity 
Another great question. So, you know, the number one thing is to know what you want to do. And I know that that seems hard for people because courses seem to sort of cover so many domains, if you will, at the same time. But the reality is I've I've taken on this problem for many, many years and it blew me away when I when I first had the epiphany of, oh, my gosh, these people aren't getting jobs because they're going into these interviews and they're not really clear what they want to do. They know they want to be in cybersecurity, but they're not really sure what role. And the hiring manager has one specific role that they need filled. And they want to make sure that person really wants to do that and is passionate because they're going to have to learn and work really hard. And so when somebody says they're not sure, and then somebody else is only looking for somebody that's sure and none of that. Like that's just a miss, right? No mess, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so that's the first thing, which is why I created the career center. It's free. You don't even have to give me your email because I want to empower the new to cyber and in the career center, every job function is outlined and different, you know, titles it may be called and what you're really going to be doing every day and prop tools that you'll use and certifications and things like that. So I think that's number one for coming into cyber. And the number uh, uh, along with number one is because job searching is a broken system, you have to get out there and network like crazy, go to all the events that you can get to and the digital ones, and then get on GitHub, get into some sort of open source projects like you know, volunteer on some teams and get exposed because it's not easy to get in. Not mm-hmm. here. I don't know about there, but not here. Absolutely. Well, and at the end of the day, it's not only about technical skills, right? They they also need to develop a set of uh, interpersonal skills. What, what I suggest often to my mentees is um, you should be open to learn and adopt a positive attitude. Uh, avoid competing with others, avoid creating villains in your journey, because at the very beginning of, of the career, this negative mindset can, can hinder your progress and make your path more challenging. So instead, just embrace challenges as opportunities for growth and learn to live with any obstacles that arise and push yourself to, to achieve your new hundred percent. That is so critical. I mean, the, first of all, the positive attitude, that's a, like, you don't go far without it. It, it. It's, it's the most limiting skill there is if you don't own it, you know, own the skill of positive attitude. So for sure. And then the, your advice of, oh my gosh, I love it. Don't make enemies. So important. <laughs> oh my gosh. I don't know about you, but I've sort of kind of made one in my life. Uh, and it's, I wish I didn't, you know, I cleaned it up after a few years because it was so awful. And that's just one. I can't imagine doing, you know, that more. So yeah, there's no reason for it. We're hundred percent responsible for the relationships in our life. Unless... It doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel yeah. good, especially if you are at the very beginning of your career. Yeah. It's just, um, you know, we have to be problem solvers about relationships as much as we are about, let's say technology or policies or, rules you know um so yes that's great advice and just just got to work hard at it it takes time but once you're in you're in you know (laughs) it's the experience that everybody wants which is why once you're in you're in you know Hmm. but yeah it's a lot 
Uh, Deidre, can you share your perspective on how the role of the Chief Information Security Officer has evolved over the years? Do you believe that organizations now perceive information security more as a business ally rather than a burden? Uh, I think that it's still more of a burden for sure. And I say that heavy hearted because um, it's sad to see, you know, it's just sad to see. But yes, it's still a burden. That's why the budgets aren't there. You know, that's why forever people are doing two or three jobs in one. It's not new for us. So, you know, it's like this. The only reason people are doing what they're doing is because of compliance. Most people like that's it. Right. It's it's mm -hmm. money driven. Like I remember when I was at Rapid7, it was before the PCI standards were finable. You know, there was no fines. And then I'm two, I'm, I'm two years into selling it and all of a sudden the fines come out. Well, it's a lot easier to sell it now. Let me tell you, night and day. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. literally, that's true. literally, yeah, literally night and day. And so, you know, that's still the case. In fact, part of the data that I showed last week at Secure World showed that in the last six months, since the economic crisis has really, you know, hit the stock market, so to speak, we've seen the jobs that are compliance driven stay steady posted in the United States. Like the amount didn't go up, it didn't go down, it stayed steady. But in the jobs that aren't compliance funded, extreme spike and fall, uh, extreme hmm. fall. And so, you know, that's just the way the world works. Money talks. Absolutely. Thanks. I think it's crucial to, to change the attitude and the mindset, especially for leaders in cybersecurity. Uh, I think we must use a better language that is business driven. We can be talking about IP addresses, right? Right. <laughs> yeah, it's really a mindset. And, you know, and to the defense of the employer, it is very difficult to identify, especially if you're a large organization, to identify risk overall in all categories and to quantify you know, security spend. Oh, yes. It's very difficult. Uh, and, you know, I always say, gosh, I'm so thankful I didn't start my company so, you know, many years prior because all of that debt, that tech debt that is unsecure, if you will, is, <laughs> is, you know, daunting. It is. Never mind how many different veins a company has at that point. So, you know, to the employer's defense, I don't believe that they have been well educated to the topic of security versus compliance in a risk matter that can be quantified to spend. Very, very few have that skill, mm. you know, people to, to actually set that up even. Talking about investments in, in security tools for defense, what are the most important performance indicators you'd consider when evaluating or considering investing uh, in a security tool? 
Oh gosh. Wow. That's good. So, you know, I think that for me, I'm a big fan of don't buy anything, whether it's a tool or a service or, you know, bringing on a new teammate that anything you're going to spend money on, know what you, what you need, what, what truly is the need. And, and, and it has to be measurable. That's the corners, Dawn, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so if the need is clearly viewed in a 360-degree view and the right executives or leadership have looked at that 360-degree view together and then come up with the need and come up with the measurable outcomes, then it's quite easy to pick tools and products. The problem is the earlier, you know, what I just said, doesn't really, there's not a lot of teamwork <laughs> going on uh, with that strat, you know, that type of strategy, but that's the challenge. I mean, I didn't know until I started selling software that there was even this concept of shelfware, you know, that people buy software and it just sits. Well, that's still happening, you know, 15 years uh-huh. later at great levels or how about just learning as a user myself, how much more there are to almost every product I use that I don't even know is there <laughs> because I'm not paying attention, you know, or not being forced the training or given the training or whatever the reason. So, you know, between products having more capabilities than people usually know, and the fact that we usually buy products without really defined you know, need and and measurable agreements, you know, I I could never say what, like, that's the only way to start, I should say. With the increasing use of chat GPT nowadays for daily tasks, how essential it is for organizations to establish information security requirements when adopting such tools? Would you say it's now the time to start developing internal policies and procedures regarding the utilization of AI-based tools such as ChatGPT? Yeah, you know, why not? It's hard to think of things that we don't even know are possible, but why not? I think every organization is already using it they may not know it. So for instance, the first thing that everybody's using it for is to replace writing. <laughs> who wants who, who wants to think about how to say something when you can just ask chat GTP to to <laughs> write this this note to so and so. I want it to be empathetic and yet firm and I don't want it to be longer than six sentences. I mean, you know, I mean come on like all these parameters. There's so much we can do with just with writing. So uh, that being said, uh, I think we any firm would be foolish not to start looking at that. Um, must organizations spend a large amount of resources defending against the outsider threat? But how about the insiders? What strategies mm. or, or measures do you recommend for effectively managing insider threat within an organization cybersecurity framework? Yeah, I um, you know, I'm certainly not a practitioner at that level, but to the point of in, you know, what's budgeted and what's not, insider threat, you know, doesn't typically fall so much on, you know, compliance budgets. Uh, at the end of the day, um, we all know that we're usually hurt by the ones we love for by you know, the ones that love us, right? <laughs> like, 
that saying is super true, as crazy and wacky as it is. Uh, and so uh, um, I think that most insider threat work falls under like identity and access, right? Right. For organizations. And, um, and there's a lot there that works and is helpful. But, um, you know, I think that organizations should do more than that, for sure. Considering how, can, uh, how can hiring practices mitigate this risk? Yeah, well, you, you know, so if you're not doing background checks and reference checks, right, then uh, right there, already putting oneself in risk. So, you know, that's one piece of of protecting in employment. I think the other is to have, you know, regular performance evaluations and regular sort of uh, check-ins of how people are doing. Typically it's hard to hide a disgruntled employee being disgruntled. Right. Yeah, that's <laughs> so, absolutely true. So if we're doing check-ins and from an HR management perspective, we're looking for the the signs of what a threat could be, right? And usually that's somebody who acts out, who has known to not be happy, who, you know, is upset. Like, you know, we should be thinking about engaging people that are upset and look at recognizing that upset people are a risk and training management how to deal with that because that's where it starts, upset feelings, yeah. So again, this all comes back to the EQ stuff. Like we can continue to make sure we've got the right permissions and the right, you know, like, and play that needle in a haystack, which we, we have to just because of where we're at in society. But it, at the end of the day, you know, if we just take on the things that we're afraid of, which is people being upset and how do you deal with that from an HR perspective? If we just own that EQ conversation, we'll see less bad internal actors. Outstanding. Well, Deidre, you are a rare diamond to our industry. <laughs> oh, Thank you I so much that. for everything you do to support other women and underrepresented groups in this field. And thank you so much for being so generous with your time, despite having a tight schedule. Keep up the awesome work. And it was a real honor to have you here today. Well, I appreciate you too and taking the mic to uh, help people come into cyber. Certainly women and underrepresented uh, genders is super important. And I appreciate you and, and more so bringing us all together as one one world. Uh, so thank you. And your, your questions are brilliant. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Cyberstar Talks podcast. If you like what you heard, please follow us, leave a review and tune in monthly for the upcoming episodes.